0: This is the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, episode number 15, Having Hearts of Peace, a conversation with Reverend Lisa schubert Noling, pastor of College Avenue United Methodist Church in Muncie, Indiana, and a delegate to the 2019 General Conference.
1: Hi, this is Rev. Dr. Mark Holland from Mainstream UMC, where we are working hard to find common ground with the United Methodist Church moving forward. You're connected to the United Methodist People podcast with Rev. Dr. Brad Miller, strengthening the connection through conversation
2: and commentary.
1: Uh,
2: My hope is not in General Conference. My hope is in Jesus. I think it could be really ugly. We have not treated each other well historically. And so I think one of the first moves we're going to have to make is a commitment to have hearts at peace.
1: Welcome to the United Methodist People Podcast with Rev. Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to accomplishing the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The United Methodist People Podcast Helps clergy and church leaders connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from the people making a difference in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And now, here's Brad.
0: Hello, my good friend, and welcome to the United Methodist People Podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. That is I, and I'm so glad you, my friend and colleague, have joined me today as we have conversations about the United Methodist Church, where it is our purpose here in the United Methodist People podcast to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. It's all to be a means, a means, a purpose, a function, a, a manifestation of living out our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And we do that by sharing stories of faith from the leaders in our church, from pastors and churches and, and bishops, and also dealing with the issues at hand in our church. We fe- I feel like we have two really major issues at hand in our church, and we're dealing with those pretty consistently here in the United Methodist People podcast. That is, how well are we accomplishing our mission as a church of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world? And then... How are we doing with this whole thing we call the way forward as we deal with matters of human sexuality in our church in particular? But there are broader, there's even broader issues that regarding interpretation of scripture and theological understandings and our cultural manifestations of our conversations here. And we do know that our church is facing some real dilemmas. It's a real impasse that we are dealing with and that uh, schism is possible, but also unity is possible. And I'm one who believes that unity is a real, is a is a really a viable thing that we can look forward to. And I would uh, enjoy, I enjoy having conversations with people where we can talk about that and the ways how this can all work out. We're having one of, one of those conversations here today with Lisa, Reverend Lisa schubert Noling. She's the pastor of the College Avenue United Methodist Church in Muncie, Indiana. She's a delegate to General Conference 2019 where we where we will be dealing with the issue of the way forward and uh, she's one of the delegates from Indiana from the conf- Indiana conference and we just have a great uh, a great conversation coming up here in just a minute i did want you to know that you can always make a connection with me uh, reverend dr brad miller at the hoosier at, at united methodist people podcast at our website which is unitedmethodistpodcast.com and you can also connect with us on Facebook, facebook.com slash United Methodist Podcast. And our podcast is here, as we said, is here to shine light on issues of the church through conversation and commentary. And if you like what you hear, we just appreciate your support by making a connection on iTunes, subscribing and rating and reviewing the podcast there. And you can also make comments on our website as well. We also have a place where you can sign up for a newsletter on our on our website be more informed what's going on as we talk to bishops and other leaders in the church about matters that matter in our church that we all love so much Lisa Schubert-Knowling is a child of the United Methodist Church she grew up in the United Methodist Church in suburban Indianapolis. She was involved with leadership even as a young person. She received a call to ministry through youth group events that she was involved with and through a Christmas walk and through work trips, work camps, uh, and she felt an early calling in her life. It really went direct two different directions, one in, in journalism and when the tug of call to do something in service to people in, marg- in the margins of life. And she thought she was going to do that through journalism, but she got the call to ministry in her teens. And uh, she's been able to put her journalism background and her interest there to work in the church. And she's been involved with preaching and teaching and, uh, and matters of justice issues for throughout her ministry, through uh, several churches and several different settings that she's involved with, where she understood the local church to be vital to her life transformation, And she loves the church and wants to be vital to other people's life transformation. And that's what she is doing now, being involved with as a delegate to the General Conference to help our church work better, to deal with the issues before us, and to be a way in which people can be transformed. And she loves the global nature of the church. She's been involved with that in many ways. But she understands that we're struggling right now and that we have struggling with our context that we find ourselves in. But she has a passion, friends. For making a commitment to live out our our faith in our United Methodist Church with hearts at peace, and no matter what happens, she has a, she has a great breakdown of the understanding of how the the three plans before us and the in the general in the at the General Conference that we'll be facing the way forward. She gives us a good understanding of the impasse of the church right now, the three plans forward, and some you know some the harsh reality that we're dealing with as we move forward. and I just really want to implore you to listen to this conversation with Reverend Lisa schubert so let's, let's get into that conversation right now. Reverend Dr. Brad Miller back with the United Methodist People podcast, where it is our mission to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary, and today we are having a, just a tremendous conversation with a delegate to the 2019 General Conference. She is from the Indiana Conference, pastor at College Avenue United Methodist Church in Muncie, Indiana, and her name is Reverend Lisa Schubert Noling. Lisa, welcome to United Methodist People Podcast.
2: Hi, Brad. Thanks so much for having me.
0: It is awesome to have you with us here today, and I know you're very engaged and very involved with a lot of things happening in the life of the church uh, here in Indiana, where we both are, but also in terms of the general church and all kinds of things going on in the life of the, of, of our church, and you're passionate about, uh, about, about the life of the church and how it impacts people's lives. But I'd really like to start, Lisa, by talking about you a little bit in terms of your how you got to this place in life. Tell me a little bit about your calling to faith in the first place and, and then into ministry and where it's led you to this point.
2: Absolutely. I was blessed as a young person to be, part of a family that absolutely was dedicated to being in church and to growing and learning um, in church together. And so I uh, was raised uh, starting at about age eight at Castleton United Methodist Church on the northeast side of Indianapolis. I can still consider that my home. Uh, Those those are the people who invested in me and raised me as uh, a young disciple of Jesus and um, taught me the stories of my faith and the songs of my faith and um, helped to start to give me leadership positions in church as well. Um, At the same time that I was learning about uh, Jesus at church and growing and becoming more involved, I also was becoming involved as a journalist uh, in an organization that was called Children's Express and later became Y Press. It was located at the Children's Museum in Indianapolis, but also had a page and then a column every week in the Indianapolis Star. And so I had a deep passion for both telling stories um, and also learning and growing with the stories of my faith. And uh, throughout this journey, I was taking on also more leadership roles at church in our youth ministry and also just in general in the life of the congregation. And I'm grateful for all the people who really walked alongside me and helped me to grow. And I had certain times throughout my journey, especially my sophomore year of high school, where I grew tremendously through a chrysalis walk experience and then also uh, my first mission experience of going and serving others in Johns Island, South Carolina. And so all these things were coming into my life and being invested in me and I was growing and I could sense uh, the spirit nudging me in in different directions. And at about um, late teenage years, I was really starting to discern what God was calling me to do with my life. And I, at the time, thought that was journalism because that was one of my deep passions and one of the ways that I really felt I was called to tell the story of others, especially people who were on the margins. And um, about my sophomore year of college at Indiana University, I was studying journalism and I just started to grow spiritually restless. And by that, I mean that I was still um, sensing God's presence in my life, but I just wasn't sure what I was supposed to be doing for the rest of my life. And I remember I'm, I, journaling as one of my spiritual practices. And I remember sort of writing and reflecting one night and saying, God, what are you calling me to do with the rest of my life? I just don't know. And what I learned quickly is that you should not ask God those types of questions if you don't want answers. <laughs> and, yeah. And, sometimes, um, sometimes
0: their plans are different, aren't they? So. Yes,
2: yeah, sometimes they're different. My plan was the journalism track, and that was not God's plan. And, and in the meantime, I'd also had a lot of – Uh, people investing in my life, Uh, first my parents, but then also lots of mentors at church and um, outside of church who were Christians and were modeling that for me. And uh, one of those really dear mentors uh, invited me to work a weekend where I was chaperoning middle school youth for my church. I was a college student at the time, and that was a real place of discernment for me. And I remember telling her, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. And she said, what do you think God is calling you to do? And for the first time ever, I said out loud, be a pastor. Wow. Um, awesome. And there was it was awesome, and there was a flood of tears and emotion. And the next morning, I shared with the youth on the retreat what had happened to me the night before. Every single person was affirming and loving, and said, "Yeah, we've seen these gifts in you for a long time." <laughs> sort of, Lisa, where have you been? Mm-hmm. And uh, that was sort of the beginning um, of that discernment into ministry. It had been happening for a long time, but that was the first time I said it out loud because I had, since middle school, been doing things, preaching sermons in the shower, um, taking on leadership responsibilities at church helping to teach Bible study for students younger than me. So all these things were coming together with answering this call. Mm. And um, uh, I I returned actually to Indiana University, finished a degree in journalism and French, and then from there went to seminary. Uh, and at first I thought I wasn't called to be a pastor in the local church. That wasn't really what I was sensing. I really wanted to do some international development work. Again, what I wanted to do versus what, uh, God had planned. Mm-hmm. And my very first summer, uh, in, after seminary, I had a, a, a student pastor, um, summer internship for, uh, 12 weeks in rural Eastern North Carolina at an eight point charge. <laughs> and I absolutely fell in love with the local church. That's
0: awesome. But if you fall in love with an eight-point charge, that's that's awesome right there. Yeah, plus, exactly. plus you preach in the shower. Most people sing in the shower. That's awesome in and of yeah. itself. I don't think I've heard that one before. That
2: yeah, so I that's was pretty home. cool. Yeah, the the Reverend Chuck Armstrong was our pastor at the time, and I would come home from church having heard scripture in Sunday school class, and I would compose little so – I wish I still had some of those little sermons I composed, right? They would be helpful now. Yeah, that would probably be an awesome,
0: There's probably a book in there somewhere or right, a, right. something in exactly, there. Exactly,
2: exactly. So I fell in love with the local church because – and I think this is important. I saw through that experience that summer and walking alongside all of the people from all different um, – age ranges and who had all sorts of different life experiences, very different from mine because they were in a very rural area. Uh, I saw in those moments how the local church was the primary place where we were making disciples of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really, really important to me. Wow. So you've had
0: some real seminal moments, some real transformational moments personally, and yes. then that's been now uh, lived out in your calling in in ministry. Tell me a little bit yes. about your life in ministry itself, uh, some of the churches that you've served, and some of the ways that God's affirmed your life in your local church ministry? Because you mentioned how that was so important that you fell in love with the local church. How's that being lived out now in your service?
2: I have. This is my third appointment in ministry, and all of my appointments have been in pretty radically different contexts, but all of which I've deeply loved, uh, mainly because I love the people, but also because I'm really passionate about helping people, um, develop as disciples of Jesus Christ. And that other part of our mission statement of transforming the world is really key to me. And I'm also deeply, deeply passionate about issues of, uh, justice. Um, and, so for, for me in ministry, my first context, I was an associate pastor in an urban place, and it was a, an amazing opportunity to learn and grow. It was my first time fully in ministry, and it was also a place where I had plenty of room to experiment, um, to try new ministries, new small group opportunities, uh, different types of things that you may not get to do in a small church because your focus is much more narrow and in this particular context I had a lot of uh, a lot of room to learn and grow and to work walk alongside people and do some pretty exciting things. So that was really wonderful there. And then my next context, I was in a small town um, anchored by a Toyota plant in southern Indiana, and it was a um, it was a shorter appointment, but it was a really wonderful opportunity for me again to get to know people in a deeper context. And there were a lot of issues in that community around food resources. And the congregation adopted a sort of tagline. It wasn't our mission, but our tagline was now serving. And that was really important to us because we were both picking up on the the food theme that you would often see in restaurants of now serving, but also on the fact that we were all called to serve as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so that was um, an important part of what was happening in there. Um, And now I am in uh, a college setting and I love being on the edge of the interaction we get to have with students. And I also really love um, being with my folks who are tied to the community as well. And the gift that this congregation is bringing to me is, uh, twofold. One is an emphasis on intergenerational ministry. We really see that every single person has a role to play in the body of Christ. And, and we need to do that together, not separated into silos. And then also, um, a real passion for being a blessing, um, creating a culture of blessing of each other, and then also a blessing to the community. And we've recently narrowed that focus to be how we deal with poverty in Muncie. And we're, we're look, excited to look into 2019 and 2020, um, uh, uh, around important issues of poverty in all forms in our community,
0: so you're intimately involved with the pertinent issues of the communities that you've lived in and the churches that you served and and you're yeah. also intimately involved with uh, issues that are facing our church as as much as you have are uh, one of our one of the general conference delegates from Indiana. Tell us how that came about that you felt the uh, the calling or the urge or whatever it is that you felt to go for that. What led you to that place? And, and find, I would tell me about that journey that got you to become a general conference delegate.
2: Sure. The, the journey actually dates back to sort of 2010, 2011, which is the first time that I um, ran as a delegate. And as I mentioned, I have always had a passion for uh Transforming the world. Um, the global nature of the church is really important to me, and uh, whether that be from the time that I was in seminary and, and spent um, another summer in South Africa, I have a deep passion for Haiti and have built relationships in a community there, um, and then just the global church in in general. And uh, in 2010, 2011, uh, I started to discern whether I would want to to serve in the capacity as a delegate. So I ran for the first time in 2012 and was referred to reserve. And that was a great opportunity for me to, to sit in and watch the action. I had a couple times that I was had the opportunity to vote and um, to be part of things. But most of all, it was being a bystander and learning how things work and how things work, most importantly, in a global context. And I, uh, because of my background in French, um, can build some special relationships with our Francophone delegates. And that has been an extra uh, gift and an extra opportunity for me. So then fast forward to 26. And and once again, I um, had had you know. A- a wonderful experience learning the insides and the outsides of, of being a delegate. I saw both the struggles and the pain and also the joy that comes when we can make those connections to each other. And 2016, I felt called to, um, to throw my name in the hat again, and I was um, elected as a, a full delegate this time. And then uh, the Indiana Conference decided to uh, keep our delegation from 2016 going into 2019 because you're actually elected for four years. Okay. And we decided to keep our delegation.
0: And so that's where we find ourselves out now here in October two thousand and eighteen yes. preparing for what's going to be happening in uh, February two thousand and nineteen I want to talk to you about that a little bit uh, in just a second here but I'm going to frame it this way uh, Lisa and that is that our uh, our mission as a church is pretty clearly stated of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world and you've mentioned that a couple of times already in terms of local church context but in order to frame our conversation about the way forward, give me your take on kind of where we are at right now in the church in terms of accomplishing this mission.
2: Well, Brad, we're struggling. Uh, I, that's, the, that's the honest truth. Um, the denomination has been in, in decline. You can see that by looking at the numbers. I'm more concerned with professions of faith than I am with worship attendance. But either one of those numbers um, has been a struggle for us in a North American context. Right. Mm-hmm. So what I look to is that I see that some of our brothers and sisters and central conferences, especially in some of the African contexts, um, that is where the United Methodist Church is growing. That's where it is vibrant. And so I think that one of the things that we have to continually do, continually do um, is to reckon with where the growth is happening. And I'm having, I, I'm serving right now in a context where uh, the church, the United Methodist Church, uh, is struggling. Um, we are not making new disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And some of that has to do, I believe, with the ability for us to um, understand that our 21st century context, especially in the United States, and what that means in a pluralistic culture um, to truly um, be people who understand our story of faith in Christ and aren't afraid to share that and in loving and gentle and empowering ways, bring other people um, by the power of the Holy Spirit to have a relationship with Christ as well.
0: So context is crucial and understanding and basically translating the context uh, in our church body is crucial. And I think that's part of the the matter that's before us is we have to understand better the context is going on in the entire world uh, as we enter this thing we call the way forward and I just like to get start to have a conversation with you Lisa about this thing we call the way forward and it's you know there's lots of takes on this but unpack it for our listeners here just a little bit from your perspective the impasse that we're at right now and what it what what this means the, the way forward, then I'll get your take on it a minute, but help us understand the context of where we got how we got here right now.
2: Sure. So the impasse we are at right now is um, the United Methodist Church and our relationship to our brothers and sisters who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer, etc. And we um, got here starting in the 1970s. And uh, I've not memorized all the different years and the, the different decisions as, as they were made, but I can easily research that. Of um, It's been going on for a the, long time, for a long time. Yes, we've been but the 70s us. is when we started to make actual statements in our Book of Discipline. Prior to that, we were debating, but we weren't making actual statements in our book of discipline. So since the 70s, we have been making statements in our book of discipline. We were one of the first denominations to um, basically decry hate crimes against people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, etc. But at the same time, as things started to take shape in the 70s, 80s and 90s, we also put statements in our book of discipline that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching, even though we see all people as of sacred worth. And then we also made statements about um, marriage between one man and one woman, and then statements around ordination and the fact that people who are self-avowed practicing homosexuals uh, at this point in time cannot be ordained in the United Methodist Church. And so uh, how we got to this impasse, I believe, because that was your original question, that's what the impasse is, how we got there, I think, has to do a lot with our interpretation of scripture. And the different, um, exegetical and hermeneutical lenses that we use to examine, um, the scriptural texts. And, um, some of us, uh, in the more progressive realm have examined those scriptural texts and we have, um, put them in the category that we have other issues like, uh, polygamy or divorce. And we're saying that, um, we are our understanding of uh, sexual ethics has continued to shift over time as God's word has been made clear to us in new ways. And so in that respect, um, we are ready in the United Methodist Church to welcome pastors who may be gay or lesbian. And we are ready in the United Methodist Church to recognize um, same sex marriages. Those of us who are more uh, traditional have said, no, we understand these scriptural passages being for all times and all places. And um, we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. And because of that, um, those who are self-avowed practicing homosexuals should not be ordained in our churches. And so um here we are at loggerheads. Uh, There are different cultural understandings that go into that too, not just our scriptural interpretations, but those cultural understandings shape the way that we read scripture. And I would also say that we are complicated by the fact of being a global church and that the church is growing fastest in some contexts that have traditionally been more traditional. But I'm not going to paint Africa with one paintbrush, just like I wouldn't paint the U.S. with one paintbrush. That's not totally true. But in general, um, Africa has tended to be more traditional orthodox.
0: Sure. And that's probably what we were talking earlier about how context matters and this whole Absolutely. whole uh, conversation that we're having. And yet, and this impasse has been, been made manifest in the fact that we have a call to general conference in February of 2019. You're a delegate to that. And it's and it's called specifically to deal with this issue, and I think we could really define it ultimately over two aspects of this: the ordination of homosexual persons and the sanctioning of of gay marriages. That's there's more to it than that. I we both understand, but kind of comes kind of comes down to that. And but I'd like for you to kind of frame for us, if you will, a few of the details about the you know there's three proposals before us, and give us just a couple bullet points on the on the Plans the proposals before us.
2: So the one church plan is uh, what what has been made by the commission on the way forward to attempt to resolve our current impasse on homosexuality by allowing for contextual decisions, allowing um, local decision making. It removes the incompatible language from our book of discipline, um, and it changes our definition of marriage so that we say that sexual relations uh, are affirmed with the covenant of monogamous marriage between two adults rather than heterosexual marriage. Um, What, uh, what it also does is it allows, but it doesn't force pastors to perform same sex marriages. It allows local churches to decide whether to have same sex marriages in their facilities. Um, It allows uh, the central conferences, the global context to keep their own disciplinary standards. Um, And it also allows The clergy of each annual conference to determine standards for ordination um, based on clergy session votes. Um, The annual conference is allowed to have a vote um, on where they stand about ordination standards, but the ultimate decision would rest then still with the clergy session. And then finally, it protects the conscience of pastors, as I mentioned earlier, who would not be forced to perform a ser- marriage ceremony with which they were uncomfortable. And it also protects the conscience of bishops and superintendents. And so the bishops, if they were not comfortable ordaining someone who was gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, could call upon a, a bishop from another conference to come and um, to do that ordination.
0: I just say, now the, let's look at the opposite side, the traditional plan a little bit. Give me a couple bullet points from your understanding of what that entails with that plan.
2: Absolutely. So let me say a word first. Um, I, I want to make sure that we're using the same language. I originally saw the plan as the traditional list plan, and then I've seen it revised in the language as a traditional plan. Um, I continue to call it the traditional list. That's what is actually put out by the Commission on the Way Forward notes. And I also want to make a note that the Commission on the Way Forward has not reviewed the traditionalist plan that what happened was when the plans were being formed, that the Connectional Church Plan and the One Church Plan were uh, the ones that the council of bishops wanted more information on, and wanted the way forward committee to continue to work on. And so the way forward did work on those two, and then when they presented them in final form to the C- council of bishops, some of the bishops from the council of bishops were not satisfied with those two plans, broke off on their own, and created the traditionalist plan. Now it's in-
0: basically it's basically an add-on. If you went to the to Commission on the Way Forward report. That's
2: correct. Right. But I just want to make sure that...
0: And yet we still, got, we still got to deal with it because it's there before us.
2: It is there before us, but I want to make it clear that it has not been reviewed by the Commission on the Way Forward. It has not had the same set of guidelines. So it did not have an opportunity for people from West Path and the University Synod and all these other groups that were consulted about the One Church Model and the Connectional Church Plan to weigh in. But it is included in the final report. But I just want to make clear... That we're clear of how it got there. Okay, so the traditionalist plan reaffirms our present definition of marriage as between one man and one woman, and then it increases the accountability for clergy who are uh, found um, guilty of, on charges of performing same-sex marriages and conferences that have been ordaining those who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer, etc. So it's an increase of accountability is what its main um, point is. And uh, there are some other ways that it has sort of broadened um, some of that accountability. One way is that it has changed the definition of self-avowed practicing homosexual to include anyone who is in a same-sex marriage or civil union. And uh, that any public statement could be evidence of that and that um, annual conferences would not allow these people to be ordained or to serve a church. So that's an important distinction. Sure. And another important distinction is that clergy are going to have to sign off on a covenant that they will not perform same sex marriages mm-hmm. and that there will be a mandatory minimum penalty for clergy who are found guilty of doing so. Um, local churches cannot have same sex marriages in their facilities and annual conferences must certify that they're going to uphold any um, prohibitions against uh, homosexuality as they do their work. The other piece is that um, boards of ordained ministry are required to certify that they have examined the sexuality of all candidates, and bishops must certify that they're going to uphold the discipline, and bishops also can't dismiss a complaint unless they find it has um, no sort of basis in law or in fact.
0: A lot of aspects of this involve uh, various aspects of uh, kind of a a legalistic form and uh, uh, consequences to actions and so on. Some of them are quite, quite severe. Um, you want to say anything at all about the conference plan before we move on here?
2: Sure. I do want to say one little piece about the traditionalist plan that I forgot, and that is it is the only plan that includes a gracious exit. I think that's an important piece uh, to to mention. I, and when I say only plan, I should say the only plan that the commission on a way forward has put before us right. that can a gracious exit. And that's so a, that those that's an okay. exit
0: that's that's an exit for local churches and or clergy or correct. Yeah, okay, all right.
2: And those who and those who are in opposition or who refuse to sign off on the statements that are put before them, um, groups of fifty or more churches can break off and form a concordant body. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would it would uh, get rid of and definitely loosen our notion of the trust clause right now.
0: Well, I think that's an important, very important aspect because there are those who feel like that is uh, a very uh, mo- a motivating factor for creating that plan to have a have a, des- a planned in built in design for exiting strategies. So.
2: The con- connectional church plan is definitely the most complicated. Of the plans that are before us. Um, it's creating three branches of the United Methodist Church, a traditional one, a unity branch, and a progressive branch. Um, and I, I use the word branch kind of loosely because it's not quite clear what the lingual will be, if that would be like a, a jurisdiction or a conference or exactly how that will flow. Um, we would remain under the Connectional Church Plan united in mission. So we'd still have one council of bishops. We'd have a shorter general conference. We'd have some general agencies, universities, um, core hospitals, etc. cetera. Um, and each one of those branches, traditional unity and progressive would be able to define, um, the, the, the guidelines that would form them. So in the traditional one, it would sound a little, a lot like the traditionalist plan with high accountability, marriage defined as between one man and one woman, pastors not performing same sex ceremonies and churches, uh, the conferences not ordaining those who are gay and lesbian, um, the Unity Conference would be very similar to almost the one church plan where people could exist of not in one mind but they could be together and um, the again local context would be where decisions would be made and then finally, progressive conference would define marriage as a union between two adults and um, pastors in that context could perform safe sex marriages, and churches uh, would allow them, and people who are gay lesbian bisexual transgender, queer, et cetera may be ordained so that is um, sort of how those would divide. But what's what's key to know in that is that it would take a, a, a series of constitutional amendments. I believe it's something like 14 constitutional mm-hmm. amendments to make the Connectional Church Plan possible and probably 10 years at least to implement. So
0: it really emphasizes the ideological aspects of uh, of our church and the complexities, in my mind, at least make it uh, you know, very unlikely that we'll see that. Come forward, so just to, to narrow our scope just for purposes of our conversation, we have the traditional or the traditional list plan, and we have the one church plan moving forward and you, as a delegate are going to be asked to act on one or or, or some new you know, possibly new proposal that comes forward you 're going to be asked to act on that and so i 'm just interested now Lisa, on how this is playing out for you what kind of What's going on with your decision making process, including uh, information or uh, connections you may have with advocacy groups or people out there who are sharing with you their hopes and their concerns, their fears, their angst, their anger or anything else? What's this process been like for you as you have to process now how you're going to vote? You're, going to be, you're one of 800 something delegates, right? And we're going to be dealing with this issue.
2: So for me. Uh, that discernment is working on a couple of different levels. First of all, there's the personal discernment level of really um, where where I feel that God is leading me at this time. and I one of the parts that I left out about my life growing up is that I grew up in a politically divided household. as long as I can remember, my parents' votes canceled each other out <laughs> and and it never it never occurred to me in that that we could not live together. And in fact, I felt like my life was richer uh, because I grew up in a household with a variety of opinions. And I feel that way with the United Methodist Church as well. And um, right now I'm leaning towards the one church plan because I believe that it offers a, a unity for us um, that is not just institutional, but is grounded in um, the Holy Spirit and allows for there to be space and opinion Um on uh, homosexuality and allows local contexts to make those crucial and important decisions. It lets us be what we've been, and that's a denomination with a broad umbrella where people of different political persuasions can be together because we're grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, I have never understood uh, personally why um, homosexuality in particular has risen to the level it has in our denomination as being a potential church dividing issue. There are so many other areas about which we disagree. And in fact, I'm doing a sermon series right now on the body and aspects uh, that are challenging about the body. Uh, This past weekend, I preached on abortion. I'm also going to be preaching on end of life care, sexual intimacy and mental health. And in the course of that, I'm trying to show how we've had very different perspectives as uh, the people of God called United Methodist. And we've been able to stay together. Um, so um, for me, this is an opportunity for us to be able to stay together, um, to live into the difficult passages of Scripture like Ephesians 4, where we're, we're called to be um, worshiping one Lord, one faith, one baptism, um, and to be um, to be gracious to each other. To maintain a broad theology and at the same time take one step forward in my mind towards um, including our brothers and sisters who may uh, be gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, etc. I think it's a compromise, which means it doesn't satisfy anyone. Sure, that's another important thing for I think people need to realize too.
0: Yeah, I've heard somebody say there's enough in the one church plan to make everybody angry at one time or another. So uh, yeah, but tell me what tell me what kind of conversations you are having either within the delegation that you're part of or within the local church or otherwise, what kind of conversations are you having with people that are kind of speaking into this decision-making in your process, or maybe we're actually, uh, you know, moving or touching or something that happens?
2: That's happening in both contexts, but that's happening very differently in both. So in the congregation, um, we are getting ready and actually just two weeks time, we're going to have some holy conferencing time together as a congregation. I've met with my leaders and we started to talk about this. I also... Um, Put before the congregation a survey to see where they are and what they would do if the United Methodist Church moves in certain directions. And I was really pleased to see in my particular local context that no matter what happens, 88% of my congregation said that they would stay part of College Avenue. And that to me is a very hopeful piece. And I think the way that the United Methodist Church is going to move forward is because um, individual. Disciples of Christ are committed to the body that they're part of right now and are committed to making disciples and to living into our mission and will continue to do that work no matter what happens to the denomination. The conversation I'm having with the delegates is very different. Um, many of the delegates in the Indiana Conference are uh, much more conservative than I am, and there is also a group of delegates that have not yet made up their mind, and so I've been investing my time in engaging conversation with delegates um that are still searching. I mean, I I think that that's really important. They're still discerning. They're still praying about it. And that's where I feel called to invest my efforts is to have conversation with those who are are still trying to figure out where, um, where God might be calling them at this moment on, on a way forward.
0: So you mentioned the context of conversations you're having in the local church and, and, and also within the delegation regarding this process. I am curious, I just have to say, if you're getting any input, positive, negative, otherwise, from up from beyond that, I'm thinking of advocacy groups or things like this.
2: Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as a delegate, you always do. I mean, that happened in 2016, and it was a lot broader. And the 2019 General Conference is obviously very, very focused on a way forward. And so all the time, I mean, I get daily emails because we have a, a group a email that's out there that's available to people if they want to send messages to delegates and um, then we also have um, folks who send us snail mail. I have folks who send me books in the mail. I have folks who send me um, lengthy letters. And so, yes, I get a lot of um, information from outside people as well.
0: We have an opportunity in the church to approach major differences of opinion, but we have the opportunity to approach it in a civil Uh, Christian conferencing manner if we choose to, but we could also go another direction. We can also dissolve into utter chaos. Having said that, what's your take on how things are going going in our church moving forward, especially if you look at 2019, but how do you think we're going? Do you think we're going to be able to get into this and through this and still love each other and care about each other, or, or is this going to go sideways here. Just, I'd like your observation and just your feeling right now about how things are going in our church as we enter into this major uh, issue here.
2: Uh, My hope is not in general conference. My hope is in Jesus. Um, And I think it could be uh, really ugly. We have not treated each other well historically. And so I think one of the first moves we're going to have to make is um, a commitment to have hearts at peace. Uh, the, con- the commission on the way forward, the council of bishops and our delegation read anatomy of peace. And we have, uh, a- there was also a statement that was made at the North central jurisdiction gathering um, about what it means to be uh, people of peace and having hearts at peace. Have you seen that? I have Brad? not. I would like to okay. see that, but yeah. I'd, be, I'd be happy to send you the link to that. Absolutely. But, um, and, I I think that has to be our first, our first commitment has to be to Christ. But then our second commitment has to be to have hearts at peace and how we treat one another because the whole world is watching, not just whatever outcome. If there is one, um, from General Conference 2019, but they're also watching how we treat each other. And we historically have not treated each other well. Um, uh, as I mentioned, 2012 and 2016 were the last General Conferences where I was present, and it was brutal. Um, and if I look on social media today, even I continue to see brutal um Brutal statements being made, people calling each other um, unchristian or not christian and and people condemning each other and um, that is not the way of christ and so I think the first thing that we have to commit to is being people who are living the way of Jesus Christ and loving each other even when we disagree and I think it could be very ugly i 'm not i 'm not going to deny that, and it has been, and so I think we need to repent of that behavior but then also um, continue to be passionate, but also be passionate for how we treat each other. Um, I had the privilege to be part of a conversation in July in Nashville, Tennessee. that was sort of the dream of some delegates back in 2016 um, who said, what would happen if we got these delegates out of the pressure cooker that is General Conference and took them to a retreat-like environment and let them have a conversation together? How would that change the tenor? At that gathering in Nashville, about two thirds of us were delegates. Some of the others were just important folks um, in some of the denominational context. It was incredible because once again, we weren't in that pressure cooker environment. We weren't casting votes. We weren't using Robert's rules, which, by the way, Robert's rules are not of Jesus. I mean, that is is let's get that out there. I mean, I understand it's hard to find what a biblical way of voting is because in the Bible they cast lots. Right. So, um, you know. I, Robert's rules are very challenging, but we have chosen to govern ourselves like a government
0: so it' be what you said about following the way of love is key and yet we still have to find a way to process this and we're going to one way or another March of 2019 is going to roll around you know, we're going to get through this conference and something's going to happen so what do you think is going to what do you think how the church is going to look look post general conference Just, any thoughts on that
2: I have been prayerfully reflecting on what that might be brad I don't no. Um, I think I, I have seen Bishop Mike Coyner, um put out a little reflection where he believes that nothing's going to happen in February and uh, he may be right. And if he is right, I think that even so, things will start to happen. Movement will start to take place. Um, I don't know. I mean, some days I hear, I get little notions that um, there's no way the one church plan will pass. Other days I hear a notion that maybe it will pass or maybe the traditionalist plan will pass or no way traditionalist plan won't pass. It's hard. It's really hard to know. I mean, you know, we continue to be um, divided. I'm not always sure that, uh, the, um the, the general conference represents the united methodist voice i think sometimes the, the general conference is made up of the people who are the at the at the, the strongest voices at the end of every spectrum each spectrum not necessarily the average united methodist uh who is uh, in faithfully in the pews and faithfully serving in the world and i don't know and that's my people saying that not knowing what's going to happen right i mean that means shift for some of them so we get to February, March. But I mean, I'm I'm honest with you. I, I don't know. And I don't sit here and pretend to have a magic eight ball window. What I do know is that come February 27th, Jesus still reigns. And that's what's important. To
0: me. Yeah. Well, that goes back a little bit to where we began our conversation that we said that, you know, we have said clearly that our mission as a church is making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And you mentioned how important that was in your own faith journey and in your, in your service as a, as a, as a pastor, and yet uh, I think it'll be very interesting, Lisa, how, what the implications will be of what decisions we make in terms of actually doing our mission. You know, I think that's, I I think that's the question before us, how this impacts our mission in terms of truly reaching folks, especially in my mind, at least younger generations who basically have already already made up their minds about (laughs) many of the issues that we're talking about here. So
2: I think I want to get back to that just a second, Brad, because I think that's key. I mean, millennials and the I generation have already said, even some of the ones who identify as more um, uh, conservative have said that homosexuality for them is a non-issue. And if, if we as a church are really have the heart to reach that, um, those, that generation, where many of them are nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not affiliated, um, then we have to make a decision of what it looks like to be welcoming and inclusive of all people. Um, and we've got a lot of work to do.
0: And that's, that's the major implication I see in terms of the mission of the church moving forward, how this impacts it. Yes. But, but having, having said that, I want to kind of conclude this conversation on a hopeful note here, Lisa. That is... What's your signs of hope for the church particularly in light of some of these younger people we mentioned we just were talking about uh,
2: first of all let me say that uh, my hope is in God and that is what enables me to do a crazy thing like ministry and parenthood and being a spouse and being a friend to others so that's the primary focus for me is our is our relationship with God but then I think that translates into um, how we live that daily out in our local churches. And I mentioned earlier, the reason I'm in the local church is because I still believe that it's the primary venue where we make disciples of Jesus Christ to transform the world. And that's what gives me hope. It gives me hope when I see college students who are, I, we have uh, seven college students right now who are willing to give up their spring break. And they're going to go to Puerto Rico for the week with in United Methodist um, an UMBIM team uh, and volunteers in mission. And they're going to spend the week rolling up their sleeves in another place and helping with, what much needed hurricane relief still down there. Um, I get excited when I'm approached by potential community partnerships that we may get to have as a congregation that would give both of us life. Um, I get excited when I see people who are willing to give of their time um, to, to walk alongside a family in Muncie who's in poverty and not just do that for a season, but day in and day out and be alongside that family as, as they have the tragic loss of a, of a baby in their family and help to support them and pay for the funeral and just be with them and be the body of Christ to them. Those are the kind of moments that give me hope because I believe that that God's still going to be working in this world and still going to be working through the Holy Spirit and through um, disciples of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to have to decide as United Methodists is if we're going to continue to discern where God's already working and where God's dreams are happening, and we're going to dream those dreams too. So I see that God's still at work. What What my hope is then is that we will get on board with where God's already working.
0: Mm, That's great. Get on board where God's working. That's a great, great place for us to leave things. And with you here today, Lisa, thank you for being with us. You mentioned some great roles in your life, wife and mom and friend, and as a pastor of college out of United Methodist Church in Muncie, Indiana, and and also a delegate to General Conference, but most of all, a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for being our guest today on the United Methodist People podcast. Our first commitment is to have hearts at peace. I hope you heard that, that phrase that Reverend Lisa Schubert-Noling made in our conversation that we had today on the United Methodist People podcast. She mentioned how we have to face a lot of heart issues, but if we do so with our hearts at peace, it can make all the difference. Let's just go over a few of the points we had in our conversation that you can take away with you. That context is crucial. The context we find our church in right now in terms of relating or not relating to younger people in our world. People have already made up their minds about matters of human sexuality and how our church needs to come into alignment with those folks in order to reach them better. We, You heard her talk about her love of the local church and how that's the place, the best place where life change took, t- takes place. It took place in her life. She sees it in the churches she, she serves right now and sees it as the hope. Of the world, I hope you heard how she's involved with people in the margins, people involved with poverty and hunger issues of all types of things, and about how that those are matters that matter in the church but she also indicated as we all heard that the church is struggling right now that we are not living out of our context as much as we can and we are struggling to meet people our churches and many of them are in decline and, and struggling, and that we are not in congruence. With our context as much as we can, the local church is still the hope of the world, but we can do a lot better and We tied a lengthy discussion, of course, about the way forward, about her understandings of the three plans moving forward, and she just gave a great outline about how there are the important matters before us mean that we have to have she has to have as a delegate personal discernment, and uh, that that we can and, and her understanding that discernment there's got to be a way where people of diverse opinions can live together under one household and she mentioned Ephesians 4 about one Lord one faith one baptism about how we have this diverse matter of opinion about kind of a narrow view of theology or a broad view of theology but her hope I just want you to get this more than anything else is her hope is in Jesus Christ not the general conference not anything of this world but her hope is in Jesus Christ and that commitment, in the hope of Jesus Christ, is to have hearts at peace and move forward. I invite you to share this conversation with others in your circle. I think it'll be helpful. We'll have a full transcript of the of the interview portion of this at in our show notes, which you will find at UnitedMethodistPodcast.com. That's our website and that you can find the show notes and other, other great interviews that we've had with bishops in the church and some other leaders in the church about the way forward and about other matters that are pertinent to us in our United Methodist Church. It's our mission here at the United Methodist People podcast to have conversation and commentary that would strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church for the reason, for the purpose of helping us achieve our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world That's why I'm here, Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. I love the Lord. I love our church. And I love the way we can communicate through conversation and commentary. If you'd like to be in conversation with me, you can do so through the website, unitedmethodistpodcast.com, or uh, have conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash unitedmethodistpodcast. We encourage you to also uh, share the good news about this podcast with other people in your in your circle and social media and otherwise, and how they can find us, you can go over to uh, iTunes. Great place to subscribe and to make a rating, five stars if you think we deserve it, and a review. All those things help other people find us in iTunes algorithms. Appreciate you being with us today. I wish encourage you to tune in again with us soon. Uh, for our next episode of the United Methodist People podcast where we will continue our conversations about the ways that we uh, are meeting and achieving our mission as a church and our conversations, particularly around the way forward. Until next time, this is Reverend Dr. Brad Miller encouraging you with the words of John Wesley. Do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all
1: the people you can, as long as ever you can. Thanks so much for listening to the United Methodist People Podcast with Rev. Dr. Brad Miller. You can continue the conversation and commentary about strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church to accomplish our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Visit the United Methodist People podcast on the web at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and connect at facebook.com slash unitedmethodistpodcast. And always do all the good you can.